everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today, we have a great special guest coming on, Brock Cruz. Uh, Brock, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Excited excited to kind of get this rolling. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today because, again, I've known you for a while now. And since you have left, uh, you know, New Haven, you've gone on to do some pretty incredible things. Had a chance to get your master's under uh, Andy Galpin and then also uh, go straight into um, kind of full-time uh, performance center mode. I want to hear a little bit about, you know, that journey and process. So walk me through. You, I know we had a chance. I forget what year it was, but you came in as an intern. You learned a lot. And now I think you actually told me before the call that now you're running an internship. So I definitely want to hear that. Walk me through kind of how you got into coaching and kind of specifically to where you got to today. Well, I definitely want to touch on internship thing at the end of this before I kind of give the spiel. But so like Coach Newman said, you know, my name is Brock Cruz. I <clears throat> I actually interned at Yale in 2019. So after that, I kind of uh, actually let's walk it back. So originally kind of how this, I guess, the iron bug kind of got started was um, you know, I was played baseball in college and kind of went through a bunch of different injuries throughout that time. I uh, had a couple surgeries and decided to transfer schools and actually changed my major. So I started as an engineer, um, turned out hated that. So went and decided, you know, I actually like this training thing more than I enjoy playing the actual game. So let me go try to figure out, you know, what is a degree that would actually allow me to do this thing in, you know, in the strength and conditioning room instead. So transferred to a school in, in Kansas called Pittsburgh State. Um, had a great time there, but actually ultimately had another injury, which led me to the opportunity to, you know, it was either uh, rehab for the injury over the summer or apply to an internship. So I think I found the Yale internship on Indeed, and I thought it was a joke. Um, I, I didn't think it was actually real. I'm like, well, the worst thing I could do is apply to it and see, you know, who scams me on the other side. So about 48 hours later, I got a phone call and I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually real. This is not something fake. So if I remember correctly, Tofi, who was the internship kind of leader at the time, told me you have 24 hours to tell me if it's yes or no. I was like, well, okay. So I'm in the middle of Kansas. I have to find somewhere to live and I have to move to Connecticut, which I've never been to. And I have to decide this all in 24 hours. Got it. So typical fashion for me is basically to say yes and then ask for forgiveness later. So I just said yes and then told my parents, hey, um, I'm moving to Connecticut this summer. I'm basically going to pack everything in my car and try to figure out somewhere to live on my drive over there. So I think it was like the, the first time I actually stayed in my car and then I found, and then I, I got a place to stay. So that was nice. Um, but I digress. So after kind of the internship uh, at Yale and then I it was fortunate enough to be introduced to Dr. Bill Kramer and he um, through a couple different lectures, actually introduced me to his first his first PhD student, who was uh, Dr. Andy Fry, and he was at the University of Kansas, which was relatively close to the university I was at at the time. Um, so uh, Dr. Kramer said he would introduce me to Dr. Fry. So I did that. I went up there and kind of had a conversation with him. And throughout our conversation, he was like, hey, you know what? I really think that kind of with your interests, you align really well with one of my former master's students. Turns out it was, you know, Dr. Andy Galpin. So he's like, hey, you should send him an email and tell him that, you know, I sent you over there. So sure enough, did that, sent him an email. And then it was a couple months later, I got on a flight, came out here about six months before COVID decided to shut everything down. I uh, kind of interviewed with him. He said, yeah, I'd love to have you kind of, you know, apply for this, this master's program and we'll see what we can do. So I came out to, uh, got accepted to Cal State Fullerton. My first actual full year of grad school was online. So that was terrible. Um, and then I moved out here 
for my second year of grad school. And we were actually supposed to restart a project that they were working at at the time. Um, but due to some restrictions out here, we couldn't do any human subject research. So I was looking around to, to find another internship. I had already completed two unpaid ones at the time. And to be honest, I've always just kind of continued to put myself in a situation where I could put more tools in the toolkit and just kind of, uh, surround myself with peers and then also mentors to hopefully, you know, trampoline, you know, some sort of opportunity uh, in the future. And when I was talking to you about, Hey, you know, where are some, where are some places out here in California that, that I could go to. And fortunately enough, Hawk and Dynamics had a couple sets of force plates out here in, in Irvine and started interning in September. And then we had some transition for people going to other positions. And I was actually offered a full-time position uh, a little over a year ago, uh, about six months before I graduated uh, with my master's. So that's kind of like the culmination of kind of the journey from, from start to finish. And I guess we can talk a little bit about the internship stuff. Now, do you have anything? I'm sure you have plenty of questions for me of all the things I've messed up um, during my first uh, couple classes that I've had here. So <laughs> I'm sure I can't wait to hear them. Well, I don't know if it's messing up because <laughs> I think, you know, you had a couple of unique uh, intern experiences that I think shaped a lot of how you're trying to set up your kind of uh, educational program. It's it's not easy because um, especially, you know, when you go through an, in as an intern, you go through an internship going, oh, I would do this differently. Well, when you actually are put in the charge of things, you're like, wow, this is hard. Like getting people to show up is way harder than you thought. Explaining you know, concepts of physics and biology, but also, I don't know, emotional intelligence and, you know, how do you speak in the weight room? How do you build rapport, but not be too friendly, be firm, you know, but be fair. It's a lot. So I don't know. I'm, I'm sure you've had some learning moments. And again, I think as long as you're trying to refine the process for the greater good of the people that come through your program, I think it's all good. So I think you probably, why don't you go ahead and tell me, what were the things you're like, oh, I got it figured out. I'm going to do it this way. And then it didn't work so well. What do you got? I think the first mistake is thinking that everyone is exactly like me and everyone had the same drive and ambition to not to say that, you know, I'm great or anything like that, but like, that's something that's continually in the back of my head. And especially when I was getting opportunities, like I would close the place down, like that like there, there was one thing for sure is like, I was going to be around as long as possible until someone kicked me out and realizing that, you know, maybe that's not, that's not for everyone. And people have other responsibilities. Like I have had a couple interns that have families, like, you know, they have a couple of kids that they have to take care of. And, you know, I need to have a little more empathy and realize that, you know, they, they have other people that are relying on them and, you know, being there for 16 hours a day, like I was as a single 24 year old, isn't necessarily the route that that may be beneficial to kind of their life. So I think taking a step back and trying to put myself in in shoes that I've necessarily never been in, then having enough like uh like to your point, emotional intelligence to go talk to other people and also the people on my staff as well. You know, I'm I'm the youngest person, you know, on the staff that we have here of five. Um, and they all have families with multiple kids. So I think just by being around them even it's given me a little bit more of a perspective on kind of what those daily tasks really are and like it is a job and you should be invested in it but um like there is life outside of it and that's kind of the same thing we like to take you know fortunately you know a vast majority of our population is professional athletes that they have families and although this is their job like they want to still be good husbands and fathers and things like that too so 
just making sure to keep that at the center um, of what, what we're trying to do. I think like things that I would like when I was going through internship, something that I, I really enjoyed with the education piece. That's something that I've kind of tried to run with. And, you know, I wish that during my experiences that we had access to those, those conversations. So something that, that we've really invested in is some high quality audio and video. And I make sure and video and, and have high quality audio on every educational experience that we have. And I post them to YouTube for them. Like I want them to have access to those for life. So, um, you know, it's kind of, I think was a buddy Norris said, you know, um, simple training works the same for the young kid as it does for the elite athlete, but for very two different, two very different reasons. I think it's the same thing when you're talking about education. Like I read the same book and it said something to me very early in my career. And then as I continue, like maybe I read it two years later, I'm like, how did I miss that? Like that is this, that's a very different reason for why that same thing works, but I just hadn't had the experience yet for that thing, I guess would kind of be to sum that up there. Yeah. And I think that people often think education is a destination. I'm going to get my degree and then I know everything. I'm going to get my CSCS and then I've got it figured out. I'm going to get my master's and I'm going to be the guru of all. But in reality, that education is, I don't know, it's kind of a moving state all the time. And I think you bring up a great point of um, you can look at a book, you can go into the weight room, you just see different things. And I think I remember, I don't know if I did this drill with you, but you know, a great way to kind of show that lens is if you take an intern out and you say, what do you see on the floor? They're going to say, oh, I, I see the iPads aren't set up or, you know, the bars are out of place. A junior coach says I'm working with a soccer team that's, you know, in a strength phase and a senior coach is going to go in and say, this is a soccer team. They're in a strength phase, but they're broken up in three different RPE scales. This person over here, you know, comes from a, a single family. This person from over here, you know, is a science major. And so all of that context now goes into how you approach them. And it can be as little as I'm going to give you a pat on the back or, you know what, this person needs to understand that the way that they're approaching the bar is unsafe. So maybe I need to come down a little bit harder on them, not because I want to be that, you know, jerk, but because looking out for them in the future and knowing that in real time is a certain challenge. And I'd be curious to see from your perspective, because, you know, again, it's just been a few years. What are, what's something that you went through as an intern? How did you view it? But then now on the other side as an instructor, either you see the value or you don't see the value or how you would approach it differently. Okay. So I'm actually having this group of interns do it right now. Um, when I, I believe kind of through the internship, especially when I was at Yale specifically, and actually at a, a previous internship I had done in Chicago, we had to go through and make an exercise library. And we had to go through and like videotape it and have these like little scripts and try to be succinct with them. And at the time I was like, this is so tedious. Uh, why am I doing this? But now that I've I've kind of been able to take a step back and and see, you know, kind of like the word vomit that occurs when you have all this knowledge in your head, but you've never really tried to talk to another human and talk them through something like as they're doing it, taking the time to sit back and try to, you know, get it down to three sentences and use something external, like push your butt back instead of give me some hip flexion with, you know, full, you know, full foot contact and dig your big toe into the ground. It's like, okay, like let's, let's try to simplify this a little bit here. And in complete honesty, I feel like I've seen a pretty good return on having interns do that, you know, now it's not, 
and they're doing it for a reason. Like we're we're trying to currently upload some videos to to Team Builder, an online platform. So we're, we're like, it, it's not just busy work. Like it's it's something to provide value back to us. And I have to make sure and tell them that. Like I, I never want them to believe that I'm just having them do something to do something. Like it's doing it to provide value for us. It's it's providing value because it's taking something off our plate so we can continue to, you know, sit back and have some time to collect thoughts together to provide more information to them from the educational side or something that, you know, we would be taken away from if we had to make sure and do things like that. Um, and it also, it's also just beneficial for them. I think I, I've actually thought about this quite a bit. So my traditional education has been the bedrock, I think, for the growth for myself in the sport performance field. And I feel like I've seen that with some of the interns that have come through and I wouldn't change it, but the experience of real-time success and failure, like being on the floor and saying things like that has been exponential, like has had an exponential impact on my growth. And then hopefully also the interns that have been around. And like it's the same thing with like this graduate school thing. Like I feel like people are going high to grad school. Like what is your objective for going? Because to be honest, there was a lot of students that were in my cohort that literally were going to hide in, in, into school because they like to learn. Like, what are we doing? Like, if you're not here for an objective, like, are you here to research or are you here to find peers or mentors? Like, you're not here to go to class. Like, they tell you that pretty much straight up right at the beginning. If you have a good mentor, they're going to say, hey, listen, I want this experience to be anything that you want it to be. You're not here to get good grades. Pass the classes. I don't care. Do good research or hopefully you know, set yourself up with mentors and then peers around you that are going to build a network so that you continue to go, you know, five, 10 years from now. Like, as long as we build a good enough BS detector, as Andy would say, right? Like, learn to filter out things that are BS. Like, everything starts out as interesting, and then it's like, okay, is this useful or useless? And the faster you're able to do that, the better you're able to progress over time. And it just infuriates me when I, like, continue to have conversations with undergrads. Yeah, I'm going to go to grad school. Why? Uh, be because. Because why? Like, I know that the barrier of entry now sometimes is a master's degree, and I get that. And I have empathy for it, and I understand. And I'm glad I went and did mine. But like, what is your goal for going there? Like, to be honest with you, I, the peers I met during grad school, the ones that I were around are going to be much more valuable than some of the mentors, even that I had as professors. Because like, I have, I can think of three people specifically that I went to graduate school now that are hold director positions or other places like, oh, sweet. Nay, now I have a good intern. Sweet. Hey, because I have a relationship with, you know, X, Y, and Z. Perfect. Hey, this person's good. Let's go. Like it only continues to look better for, you know, the program, but then also hopefully it makes us more competitive when people want to come and be interns. Like, Hey, we're going to pump you guys out. And this is gonna be a great program. Cause we're going to place you like, that's the goal of this. Like, I think I saw some argument on Twitter the other day about, you know, like there was someone said there an intern left early for a full-time position. And the first thing I was thinking of was like, well, I would love if they would left for a full-time position, but Maybe there's context behind it and maybe there's something like, like maybe they went behind their back or whatever it is. But like, I want my interns to leave early if they can. I think we're in a different situation because we pay ours. Um, but if it was unpaid, like, dude, you got an, you got an opportunity. Hell yeah. Get out of here. Like, go yeah. get paid.
that was the the whole point. I, I think uh, if you remember, I would always bring everybody in and say, you know, what's the point of the internship? And I was like, to learn, to grow, to get a better understanding. And I would have to sit everyone down and say, it's to get a job. Ideally, you go through this process and you get a job. There's only, what is it, like 3,200, 3,600 openings nationwide. And I think Jerry Martin was the one who said this. Uh, he was like, who, who are you going to take? Who are you going to be better than? And so you have to learn the skills. And, and to your point, sometimes it's an education. Like, no, the hamstrings aren't located at the top of the shoulders. No, that that's that that is a fundamental knowledge problem. But then you get other people that are so analytical and they're so into their science, they can't say, hi, my name is, and then, you know, strike up a conversation with them. And you do you do bring up a good point, especially when you get into that master's level. The idea is that there's some transferable skill or knowledge that is going to set you apart. But if you're just becoming a paper coach or a paper researcher, um, you see a lot of the stuff on both sides of where this is so what research, how does this move the the needle forward? Or are you just doing this um, to be different? And so um, those are all really great points. And I think anyone listening should take that to heart. I, I didn't get a master's right away. I went right into it and I was fortunate enough to have enough mentors, but to your, your point about that, you do hit barriers and at some point you need to do it, but whether it's in one year, two years or 10 years, have an intent with what you're trying to do with it. I think so. This is this. I'll, I'll kind of give a little bit of the same thing that I when I go and recruit for interns at, at some of the universities. Like, I the first question I ask them is, how many graduates of exercise science degrees in the United States do you think were awarded in 2020? And they'll give me, you know, ten thousand, you know, fifteen thousand. I say it's thirty five thousand. And it's growing by 1.58% every year. So, okay. Now, how many how many people do you think in the U.S. have those degrees or are currently in the workforce? Well, the answer is 644,000. Okay. So let's do some simple math here. Let's just, let's assume that we're just talking about strength coaches. Awesome. Okay. If we look at strength coaches in the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball, let's just use three major sports. What percentage of those 644,000 hold positions in those major pro sports? You say you want to be in pro sports. Awesome. I want to help you get there. 0.18%. Okay. How are we going to set ourselves apart? And then hopefully try to pr provide a solution and say, hey, listen, you know, at the internship that we, you know, we have, you know, hopefully we can help you set up for those positions. And, you know, fortunately we have people on staff that have held those positions. So, if you continue to do a good job and make a good impact, hopefully we can help you, you know, get to your goal. It may not be next year. It may not be three years from now, but it may be five and maybe 10. Like they're extremely hard to get. And ultimately it comes down to like, it is who, you know, like what, you know, gets your foot in the door, who, you know, kind of continues to open more doors for you. And the work that you do speaks volumes. So this is an extensive job interview. You do a great job. I'm going to have no problem reaching out to, to other people to try to get you a job. Um, but if it's just kind of a little bit of like, you kind of go through the motions, like, yeah, sure. I'll write a, a, a letter recommendation. Awesome. would love to, but there's a very big difference. And I tell our interns all the time, there's a big difference between having people that have, you've been mentors, you've been around reaching out for jobs for you and them just writing a letter because you asked them to. Yeah, I, I think that people don't understand is that when you tap into a network or you're going forward, you're putting your name on that. And, you know, as a director or as someone who makes that recommendation, it's not just a piece of paper and goes out. You start to build credibility. I mean, we had tremendous success placing 
uh, so many interns because when people would ask and be honest too, if you want to go be the director of a program and you're 22 years old and you have no experience, probably not going to recommend you for that. But if you show that you can work hard or usually there's a superpower uh, that every intern has inside that just needs to be cultivated, um, we can put you in a spot where you can continue to grow. And I, and I would always say to everyone, I can teach you science, I can teach you lifting, I can teach you these things, but you got to be humble and hungry. And often there's a lot of people that are very hungry. They're very hungry, um, but they get too good to pick the turf. They get too good to look at the data. They get too good to uh, fold the towels, um, to do the little things. And so that humility kind of goes out as hunger goes up. But you really look at some of the top performers, they'll do anything and everything and they'll do it all the time. And that's something that, especially earlier on in the career, that's all you have. And even if you think that you're the master of insert technology, insert training methodology, um, you know, you go out on a floor with a bunch of veteran NFL players. Good luck with that. Good luck with being able to relate and connect. And I think that that's where these internships and I'll even go and say apprenticeships is starting should and, and is starting to resemble more of the medical residency where you had the undergrad, you had the med school, but now you should be watching and learning because there's just things and I'm sorry you, you, unless you've been on the floor, it just takes time to, and, and a good floor to watch how things operate in a heavy weight room or in a fast weight room. You just don't know. And the problem is, is that in, unlike any other profession, um, you know, the, the pitching coach or the, the, the hitting coach, they're not going to get crushed under the weight of the bat. They could get crushed under a bar. And so there's a real responsibility that I think that until you've experienced it, I know you went through some of this as well. You feel like you're good and then you go, oh my God, and you have that panic moment and you know someone can get hurt for their life or end a career or who knows. So it's just, it's one of those processes that needs to be more clearly defined. And it's cool to hear you talk about some of those stats and numbers as you go forward. I think, and I'll call myself out, like I know the exact moment you're talking about, but um, I think it's, I think a vast majority of even like kind of interns that have applied or that I've kind of been around, like the reality is it's a lot of it's pseudo athletes that were never good enough. And they love the weight room because it's something that gave them some return on, you know, kind of success. And like, even in team sports, the reality is, is you want to play. So if there's people in your, in the depth chart that are above you, you want to beat them. So you are willing to do whatever it takes to continue to win. And I think that's something that I struggled with quite a bit is kind of being someone who's a little bit lower on a depth chart kind of throughout my college career is like when I got into an environment where it was a professional setting, I'm like, I need to win. But it was, I was making it about me and not about like the conglomerate of like the team that we were around to make not me better, but the athletes that we were working with. <laughs> like I was almost stuck in that. And I think it was almost a jealousy thing because I never really had like a, a truly structured program. And when, when I got in and was able to see one, it was, it was almost a jealousy thing of like, wow, what if I, you know, like it, it became selfish again. And then I really had to take a step back and, you know, through, you know, quite a bit of conversations and then also failures of kind of putting myself first. It's like, okay, like, what is the goal here? The goal is to serve the athlete and then, you know, make sure I work well in a team environment. So people don't hate me. Because like being ostracized hard, sucks. <laughs> but that's, that's the, that's the hard balance, right? Because you do get some conformity and depending on who the group is, well, you know, it's okay to drop our standards. If you're hardwired a certain way, that becomes really challenging. And, and 
I can speak from at least my perspective was trying to put people in cohorts of like-minded standards. You're always going to have the people, it's okay. They're, they're putting their toe in the water. They're not quite sure. Then you have people that are super excited into research. And then you had people that want to be practitioners, but realizing they might all have different skill sets, but the common thread is that there's some people that will stay and can stay longer. There are people that will come in early or anywhere in between, but trying to make it so that, you know, you're not pulling your top performers down, um, but also letting those people that aren't sure. And I had a number of people come through. They're like, this isn't for me. Well, that's probably pretty great to figure out now, instead of being in a career for five to 10 years, where you're probably not going to make a lot of money. You're probably going to have to move around a lot. That's also okay as well. And I think that you probably saw some of that too. And I'd be curious that, you know, being aware of that, because you are pretty spirited in, in what you do, how have you gone about tempering that to try to be more, um, you know, team focused, but also not dropping your standards? You know, it's, I still struggle with that pretty frequently. Um, but I think I'm trying to realize, especially with, like, I've been very fortunate to to be in positions that um, pretty early in my career that have taken, uh, you know, other individuals a little bit longer. And that's not to say that it's better or worse or whatever it is, but um, to realize that some people are just at different points in their lives. And I may be extremely hungry and ready to do something, um, but I may, you know, bull rush my way through it when someone with much more experience than I, than I have is like, Hey, listen, like that's, that's not the way we do it because we have to, like, they've had that experience before and and they know what they know what it's like. And my eagerness and, um, like bravado to get things done may come off, um, disingenuous and it may come off as, Oh, this arrogant young kid is coming on in here. He's ready to go. But like, it's not coming from a bad place personally. I think personally it comes from a place of just wanting to be great. And just like, I don't know anything else besides, you know, turning the dial up. And something I still need to be, be better at. And like, maybe that comes as I get, you know, further along throughout my career, I, I learned to kind of temper it back a little bit, but you know, I'm in my, my mid twenties right now. Like, I think it's time to put, put the, you know, get a little lead foot and hammer the gas. Like, I'm trying to make the, the, the best I can of this right now. And, you know, it, when I get to, you know, the thirties and things like that, like maybe, Hey, Hey, it's time to ease off a little bit, but then, you know, know what those standards are to your point and make sure and hold them. You know, when I get into a more senior role, uh, wherever that is, it's okay. Now, now I know what standards, you know, need to be set and how can I make sure that everyone around me um, wants to work for me? And they're not like, Hey, this guy still is kind of a hardo. He's, you know, foot on the gas. Um, I don't know. I, hopefully that answers the question a little bit. I kind of got lost kind of in, in that one. <laughs> well, it's tough to be chained, you know, chained to <clears throat> time. And I think there's a difference between this is a period of time we need to work incredibly hard to do incredible things versus I, I've spoken to some of the, the individuals that you know, that you had uh, the internship with and other um coaches that we've known throughout the years. And then you get these other guys, well, this is the way I've always done it. This is where we're going to be first ones in last ones out. And it's like, I'm sorry, as you mentioned, like if this is printing cards, we have a solution for that. You know, if it, if it's because you didn't have technology, we didn't have those meetings. We want to be as efficient as we can too. And trying to figure that out. And, it, and, it, and it's challenging. You know, I'm laughing as you say those things about being hard charging. Cause that was kind of the biggest knock I ever had on my career was that 
well, you just go do it like a bull in a China shop. And I was like, well, you want to do things that have never happened. We can't keep doing things. Away. And, and I think you bring up a good point is sometimes you need to listen to some of those who've been, you know, before you to say, okay, maybe there's some learning lessons, you know, that I can, you know, take into consideration. Um, but I knew for a fact when we were at Salve, we weren't going to, you know, this is 2007, 2008. We didn't want to lose in football anymore. We didn't want to lose in ice hockey. And then fast forward to 10 years later, well, we don't want to lose the Harvard anymore. And there's certain things that I know they're going to trade. They're going to take incredible efforts by the staff to get this accomplished. And that's why I still, you know, and you've heard me mention this before. It's all about your people. Like you can only achieve those things. And so right or wrong, I'm going to try to surround myself with like-minded people, but we're going to push. But, you know, that whole idea that everyone's replaceable, that's a, that's a minimum wage, uh, plug and play, churn and burn mindset that especially today, post-pandemic, you mentioned that earlier. I don't know if that exists anymore. If you want to have those consistent results, um, I think it takes incredible people that go way outside the normal duties um, because it's what needs to be done. Um but you know, often is overlooked. So I'm right there with you. I have a, actually have a question for you. So I've only really recruited interns in this post-pandemic type of environment. Like, I don't know, maybe this is me being like the, oh, well, back in my day type of thing, but I, I don't know. I feel, like, I feel like it's different. Do you feel like the expectations are different just because of kind of what happened with kind of the online school and things like that? Because that definitely took a toll on me. Like, when I had to go my first year of grad school, like I thought it was going to be something completely different than it actually was. Um, I feel like I, I definitely didn't get the experience that I had hoped for, but then I also feel like that the peers around me didn't necessarily have the same ambition that I had anticipated. Maybe that was because I had set an expectation so high that um, it kind of just fell short. But then there was also peers that were around me that kind of had the same like-minded um, approach. So I guess my question to you is like, because I know you had some pre, obviously, and then during, and then maybe even post a little bit. What were kind of the biggest differences with those individuals? That's a great question. And I think that, you know, whenever I hear there's no interns, I just laugh. Because when I got to Salve back in the day, I used this thing called the Facebook. Yes, it had the on front of the Facebook. And we use it to recruit people from colleges. And we got people to come to Newport, Rhode Island, and and study and train and so never had a problem there but everyone said well how are you going to reach out to them um when we got to yale they don't yale doesn't have exercise science and i remember people saying no one's going to come here we don't have exercise science. i said we're, we're goddamn yale like someone's going to want to go here just off the name and the branding and i think what was the stat you said earlier it was like thirty thousand um people are graduating here i find it very hard to believe that even in post-pandemic time that you can't find five or ten people that are looking to be great what I can say is I think the pandemic exposed to a lot of people the idea that you could just, uh, oh, be my intern and basically you're going to do all the crappy work around and, and we're just going to use you as free labor because let's let's call it what it is. I mean, we were there was a reason why we were the first school in the Ivy League to get our internship accredited, to go to the NSCA, make it a formal education. And so I think if you're just using people, word gets out. I mean, everywhere I've gone, I've never had an issue recruiting people, but whether I'm there, whether I'm not, whether I hear other people, you just have to make your product better because yeah, kids can learn a lot online now, but tell me why your time with you on the rack, are you spending enough time with your interns? Have you coached them up? Do you have a connection? Go do that because I mean, shoot, we were just about 160 in three years. I don't, I don't know what the numbers are currently right now, but if you have a good product, people 
more people tell more people and you don't have a problem. We were selecting, we weren't, you know, begging on the flip side. If you don't have a good product, people get out there and talk. And the goal is to try to make sure that you have a product that evolves with the times and don't just say, Oh, you know, we're insert name, you know, we're on, you know, Mount high and you should come train with us. You should be so lucky. You have to really go out there and connect, but then you also have to back it up. Are your interns getting jobs? Are they going to a, you know, just another, you know, retail job or a mic job and nothing against those jobs. But if someone's going to spend the time, like you mentioned, you had to spend money for an apartment, you had to spend money. So there's gotta be a financial value tied into that experience that someone can see. And if it's not, then yeah, you're going to have trouble recruiting, but I just, it's never something that I've ever, ever had an issue with. Um, but I think that that's, that's just the general economics each and every year. I've definitely obviously, you know, heard of like, I go back to like experience versus exposure. Like there's a lot of exposure internships where it's like, Hey, just watch around and clean some benches and load some plates and kind of just be here. Well, there nothing valuable is coming out of that. Like, you need actual experience. You need time on the floor. You need to coach people, but put them in a sandbox environment where it's okay to fail a little bit, but it's not going to be detrimental to the athlete. Like if they come to an internship here, like you are going to coach, like, you're going to coach because that's the only way you're going to number one, figure out if you like doing this. Cause if you like doing this, then we can continue to go down this path. But if you don't like doing it, like, awesome. Hey, we, we kind of checked this box. You, you had your little taste and you're like, you know what? I don't think this is for me. I think I would rather do research, which is awesome. Or I want to go to PT. Sweet. You know, like hopefully I helped you along that path and we provided a little bit of range for you so that when you interact with a sport coach or you interact with a performance coach, you know, if you're a physical therapist years down the road, you have a little bit of an idea of kind of what their environment is. Like as long as it provides a little bit of value. So I, like that, it really does bother me when I hear people talk about, you know, those type of internships. And I think like you just said, because there's so much information to learn online now, it has exposed kind of some of those programs where it's like, okay, well, they have all the information now. So I have to kind of give them some experience because otherwise no one's going to come here because everyone heard no one's really chasing that big name anymore because there's so much free information out online about what happens in those weight rooms. Like Twitter, seriously, if you go on Twitter, there's so many people who post exactly what they're doing in their collegiate, you know, weight rooms. And you can go and just read and watch videos. But doing that is very different than actually coaching it yourself. Yeah, I think you have to make it fun and you have to make it engaging. And if you're asking them to make a $10,000 investment in rent and car and gas and food, then you better have a $10,001 experience. And I know people go back and forth. You mentioned you pay your interns. I think, I think that's great. Um, but I also know that, you know, you go to school, you pay the teacher to teach you something. That's what your tuition bill is. So in that environment from paid to unpaid as an organization, you have to say, okay, does this person have the skill sets that I need that I would pay for? Or are they just so new? And I remember asking interns, I'd say, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what you can expect. Who thinks they can run the floor? And often you'd have someone who's very excited and very confident. So let them run a warm up. Here, here's 40 football players. Go, have at it. Here's your script. And then you're like, oh man, I'm completely in over my head. And and that's okay to figure it out. But that's that that balance. And and again, whether it's a small stipend or whatever. I mean, I know we pushed hard for that. But again, the reality is there is no funding. So if you're asking me, there's no funding, there's no support. So you can't get interns. You can't get support for your program. What should you do? And I think it's on every director to try to figure out what are you capable of adding to the industry, given your constraints and do the absolute best job possible 
to help that next generation forward. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And like, I think when it comes to the paying the interns, so currently I, I work at Stanford sports uh, here in Irvine, California. And so we're actually partner with a hospital system. So it's Stanford health. that's actually based out of the Midwest. So due to the healthcare system and laws in the state of California, we actually by law have to pay them. Um, that's just something that, that the, the legal team has, has come and told us. Um, but I have this thing of like with internships, right? Like you're going to go pay for a seminar. Someone's going to go pay to go to a course. Like if I'm not providing value enough for you to invest in us, like the difference between paying for a course and paying for with an internship is with the internship you pay in time for the course you pay with dollars. Like if it's not worth your return on investment for your time, go find somewhere else. Like you do also pay for your time because you have to pay for food. And house. <laughs> so let's be clear that that time and yeah. that time plus rent uh, is there, but it's it still come, the, the economics do come down to the product that they're spending their time or investing their time in should come back to them X fold compared to anyone. If you have people leaving, like you gotta take a look back at yourself. Like, am I not providing enough value? Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, I think the first thing that I always ask myself in kind of those situations is, where am I the problem? Like, that, I think that's something that was learned. Like, I, I guarantee that wasn't the. It, I know for a fact it wasn't the, the attitude I had. You know, you know, especially even when I started the internship with you, is it was like, okay, well, why, why, why is someone else not doing this? Like, I never actually looked at myself and like, oh, maybe I'm being an asshole. <laughs> like, you know, like maybe, maybe it's, maybe I'm the problem in this situation. Like what's the common denominator here? Oh, it's me. Yeah. And I think that that's really hard for a lot of instructors and people used to, I mean, I don't know if you were a part of this, but I know I had my full-time staff evaluate me anonymously and grade me. I mean, that's pretty tough. And then we went through, it was a long formal thing. It was actually the school of management at Yale. It's pretty, pretty great. And it should be, but they had a nice little form, but that took a lot of stones to go in and here and have your, you know, your staff evaluate you. And then with the interns, you know, we don't, what can we do better? You know, we want to hear and whether it was more hands-on coaching, okay, we'll do that. And so all the way through class 11, because each, you know, spring, summer, fall, spring, summer, fall was a different class all the way up through class 11. We always try to add one thing or two things and then take away one or two things to really adjust with the times and be great. And I remember like things like, we wish there was a more structured schedule. We we hate sudden changes, which is the, you know, 530 call that you're going to the field rather than here. And I said, you know, unfortunately, that's one of the things we all wish we could change. But when you're a staff of six, you know, servicing 32 teams, 900 athletes, they're, they're, you ha that's part of the gig. And, and maybe why you want to go private sector because you get billed by the hour, you know, things like that. But it does it does take a lot of, again, humility. And, and my whole thing was, OK, well, I did the best I could. I tried to listen to the people before you to give you said product and I will listen to it now. So, um, you know, but knowing that there's always a way to make something even just a little bit better. And I think that that comes out in the craft and, and I'm sure you're seeing that now, like you mentioned in the hospital system, you do have to be mindful of those roles that you put people in, but still try to push the envelope forward in that educational experience. Yeah. Like the sudden change thing actually happened yesterday. <clears throat> like we had an intern literally fly in from Pennsylvania to come and do an interview and we had some things change. We had some of our, our phone combine guys got pushed back. So they had to go and run a little bit later. But then we had the veterans in and we had a couple of injured guys doing return to play. So it's like, well, hey, like with these injured guys, it has to be more a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. So like, I don't have time to go and do this interview right this second. So 
hey man, I really apologize, but you, you know, be around, hey, talk to our interns. Like I want them to tell you everything, the good, bad, the ugly of kind of what this process has been like. And then, hey, as soon as we're done here, absolutely. Let's, uh, I'm going to pull you in and we're going to, we're going to get this thing done. I felt, I felt terrible, but at, at the same time, it's kind of just the, the nature of kind of the field in general, like things happen extremely quickly and you have to make sure and take care of, you know, the people that are actually paying for a product, especially in the private side, um, I guess for us. And kind of rolling with that, you're in a very unique situation that you're part of Sanford, you do some rehabs, you've done performance. Um, what does it look like? And I don't want to say what's your methodology because that can devolve into, you know, my feelings and training, training this way or that, but what is your kind of thought process or what's kind of the workflow as a, as a outfit that deals with such a wide range of abilities and, and, and capacities, what's your methodology of how you guys think, or what's the analysis look like? So it's three things. It's athlete centered, performance driven and data supported. Oh my goodness. Could you have three more? Creatures, <laughs> so number mean? one for, yeah, exactly. So number one for us is like, it's all centered around the athlete because the reality is, is in the private sector, people choose to be here. So if we don't make it about them and make sure that, you know, we're not making them, um, you know, or hopefully trying to help them, you know, get back to some sort of restorative level, especially after a season. Because the reality is, is like we're an off-season destination for the most part, just because that's it's kind of what it is. So we're very fortunate to be partnered with a sports, a sporting agency that, you know, provides, you know, veteran, veteran athletes that are their clients as well as combine classes. So we have, and every year we have anywhere from, let's say 10 to 15 um, athletes that are preparing for the NFL combine um, so that they'll come in in January and kind of, you know, be with us throughout that time, but to kind of go back. So then, so athletes that are performance driven. So like the reality is I think a lot of like a lot of this information and data age is like people chase these metrics and things like that. Like the reality is if you're not making them better at performance, like they need to be better at sport. Like I don't care if they have, you know, a 250, higher peak force on the IMTP like how is that making them better at what they do like if you don't if we don't have a reason for making them stronger in that mid-thigh pull like why are we doing it like we're not trying to chase this metric just to be like hey look you got better okay well what did you actually get better at like it didn't make you help I didn't help you get to contract two or contract three I just made you better to test so that's a little bit, a little bit of the performance driven. And then data supported, like we don't want to use, we don't want to make say that data is driving everything, but we want to make sure to make sound decisions with, you know, logical programming. Like, okay, what has worked before? Sweet. Is the data supporting what we're saying is going to happen? Awesome. And that's, what's great about having such, you know, precise technology now is you can really almost look into a mirror and say, okay, am I, am I doing what I'm saying I'm trying to do to this athlete? Because if not, then you need to go back to the drawing board and kind of remove the ego and be like, okay, that did not work. How can we make sure that we continue to make them better? Because obviously what, what just happened wasn't what we expected. And if it didn't, like maybe there's a delayed training effect. Maybe there's something that, that comes on a little bit later, but I guess that would be kind of the three. So it's the, the, the athletes at the center. We're trying to drive performance and then using data to support the decisions that we're making. Yeah, and I'd love to kind of dive into that a little bit deeper because – we think about the body. I mean, as you mentioned, when we're measuring things at a, you know, a thousand samples in a second, you can get some really sensitive metrics, but we also have things like bones that the feedback loop time is much longer. It might be year or years. 
how are you making sure that some of the advances that you're making or some of the things that you're doing aren't just delayed in their response because you can get some false flags. You can get, oh, this isn't working. But I can tell you right now, I've got protocols that I don't care what the data says. This is what the coach wants us to do. And and often those two worlds are like oil and water. So how have you guys mitigated that, especially in the professional setting, which they're pretty good if they got to you. How do you make sure you don't blow up what's worked to get them there? 100%. And I think that's something that happened. Like you can get stuck into this pretty quickly if you're like, okay, here's the athlete profile. We did all these tests, let's change everything. Okay. Well, now we don't know what actually worked if something did happen. So for us, it's kind of thinking about it in more of a linear periodization model for the most part. Like, okay, let's go to GVP, strength, strength, speed, speed, strength. That's the general outline. But when we get an initial profile, okay. Hey, they just came off a season. What they probably need is volume, time under tension. Let's try it. Let's try to get some tissue integrity back. Good. What we might change is a little bit in that power block for us. We use more of a vertical integration model. We might use, we might change the power block from a loading parameter standpoint based upon some vertical force velocity profiling that we do. That may be the only thing we change. We may change one or two days of that power block. And everything else is going to stay the same, basically, from kind of a general outline, because we know this is solid training. This is stuff that has worked for a long time. But we think we can make a little bit of a difference and kind of shade them in the direction that may help them be a better performer later on. And as we get closer to season, it's or closer to when they leave, more specific kind of as you go towards the season. So more said principle, specific adaptation to impose demand. Nice. So we might begin to might begin to make it more um, based upon the athlete profile at that time. We can go as far down that athlete profiling rabbit hole as we want. Uh, there's a lot there, but um, I think just the general outline is knowing what like the general GPP to strength, to strength, speed, to speed, strength. And then how can we layer in some of this athlete profiling stuff that we've done to make small changes, but not change everything? Because uh, I think I think you get down um, a rabbit hole that you just you don't understand or you, you, you lose what is actually happening, I guess. Now, you mentioned you're looking at the 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 force trace on some of the jump protocols. What are you seeing for there? What, what are you seeing on those? And what are you seeing is changeable? Cause I always, you know, remember the conversation we had with doc Kramer about, you know, mutable and non-mutable. So if someone is short and they come to you and the coach says, yeah, if you make them six inches taller, they're going to be great. I can't really do that. If you need me to yeah. make faster, I can do it a, a little bit. Like there's some things I can do, but strength or range of motion, there's other properties that are highly adjustable. What are you seeing on the traces and what are you seeing as far as intervention wise moves the needle? Exactly. So I'll just give you a little bit of a breakdown of kind of what we do from the force plate perspective. So first we, we kind of do both an arm swing and a hands on hips counter movement jump. So from there, we'll be able to see a little bit of what true output is from that arm swing kind of movement jump, especially if they're, they're a jumping athlete, if it's a basketball player or a football player, some sort of uh, muscular power, you know, uh, proxy. And then the hands on hips, what we also take from that is a little bit of our health metrics. So we take, okay, what is a proxy of how well they put on the brakes? So we use peak relative braking power. That's what we've decided to use because it kind of, it takes into account both time and then the work actually done in that. So it's the change in work over the change in time. That's how we get that peak relative braking power at the bottom. And then now we say, okay, what's the strategy for that? Sweet. Okay. Let's look at impulse index from right to left in both the braking and propulsive phase. So there's two things that can happen. 
They could be really bad at putting on the brakes, but have a great strategy, or they could be really great at putting on the brakes, but the strategy is destined for catastrophe. But there's also context, right? If there is a rotational athlete, if I have a baseball player and he's been, you know, 21% favoring to his right leg for the past four years and he's in the big leagues and he's been healthy. Okay. Well, maybe that's what makes him special. Maybe that's his superpower. Maybe that's, that's what makes him great at what he does. Like, I'm not going to go and try to change this, this right to left for him. Maybe we'll set a bandwidth, be like, Hey, if he's within plus or minus 5% of this, Hey, we've probably taken a look at this, you know, a little bit later. Um, from there, kind of what kind of drives that power block that I was kind of talking about is our vertical force velocity profile. So we use the Marin and Samazino, um, a little bit of adapted there. So we actually use a trap bar. They used a barbell. For those who don't know what that is, could you just break it down? Because you just went over that pretty quickly. So for a listener, <laughs> yeah, down real quick. Um, could you go? So the vertical force velocity profile. Absolutely. So. Basically, this vertical force velocity profile occurs at a variety of loads. So the entire idea of the Marin and Samazino work was to um, elicit peak power at body weight. So by using a variety of loads, we are able to see if someone utilizes force or velocity better when they're achieving peak power for their jump. So Based upon the profile, so we're very fortunate that we actually have a sports science institute that is um, with Stanford. So we have all these ideas and we're able to say, hey, how can we get this into an Excel document to make it very easy for us to input and then implement quickly? So what happens when you kind of put these into an Excel file is you get this something called an optimal line. And this optimal line is the assumption that they will have a peak power at body weight with a hands-on-hips jump. If the line, when you graph it from the variety of loads, is above this so-said optimal line, that means they utilize force more to elicit jump height. If it's below, they utilize velocity to elicit jump height. So what this tells us is how, is, how we make it actionable is if they utilize velocity more, we want to try to drive them a little bit more towards that optimal line so they can have the highest peak power at body weight. So we may use a little bit more uh, force dominant, uh, ply or not plyometric, sorry, um, power-based movement. So think a heavier trap bar jump instead of a lighter one. This is the easiest way to go about it. So if they're force dominant, we'd be like, hey, let's let's use maybe 30% of body weight because the literature would say that, it, that elicits peak power in like a dumbbell kind of movement jump. Sweet. Let's try to drive them closer to the optimal. If they're below and it's their velocity dominant, let's try to drive them up. So let's use a heavier jump so they utilize force a little bit more. Hopefully that makes sense. So that's essentially what we do to change the power block. And like I said earlier, it's not changing everything. It's changing. Hey, maybe on there, you know, we have, you know, structured in that GPP phase. We have a trap bar jump on Monday. Sweet. Okay. Only thing we're changing is the loading parameter. We're not changing the actual movement per se. So that's kind of how we drive a little bit of the, the power block um, for us as we go through um, programming from phase to phase. And the last thing we do is a, a isometric mid-thigh pull. For us, especially in the, in the professional population, um, doing one rep maxes or even like doubles and triples really heavy for us at times, it's hard to get them to buy into it, number one. 
uh, because, you know, sometimes you'll have these guys who are eight, nine years in the league and they're like, Hey, I'm not doing that. So you can, you can tell me we're going to do it all you want. You can try to persuade me for it or whatever. I'm not going to do it. So we found that this is a better and easier way for us to get a proxy of max strength, but then also get a little bit of a dynamic strength index. So we can kind of see, Hey, where are they at on this, this spectrum for their, their potential for max force production and their ability to express it quickly. And hey, maybe these linemen, for example, live in this in this area that is low on the DSI. I think you've had, um, gosh, Guy Hornsby on before, and he talked about dynamic strength index. So I don't want to necessarily go over that again. But if they're lower on that DSI, like, hey, maybe that's where they live at. And we should kind of keep it there. Um, but just kind of depends. I like how you bring up the point. And I, and I remember this happened uh, with the functional movement screen. Early on, everyone was trying to get someone to have perfect movement and these, you know, set of movements that were in a test. But what you found with some of the top performers didn't do well on the test. So should we change their gift, what got him that got him or her there? But then also realize there's huge consequences, especially as we talk about the higher force or higher velocity sports. You start messing around with that. That elbow has done that thing the same way for years. And to your point, I like how you said it's not that you're letting them have an asymmetry unchecked it's you're going to set a two or three percent tolerance on their specific one and that just wasn't possible um even just five ten years ago to be able to dial it in at that level and say okay now it's a check engine light now it's a oh you know we better get on this and 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 also i laugh when you say like yeah the thing about private sector you can't force anybody to do something so you have to have a very good reason and Again, personally, from my standpoint, whether it's isometrics, whether it's heavy, heavy cleans, hang clean, Olympic, not Olympic, a lot of that's going to fall on, hey, athlete, <laughs> what do you feel comfortable with? And and if I don't have time to get you comfortable, what is my next tool in the toolbox? And is it going to be an approximate proxy or do we need to go a different uh, direction? So that's a really I think good ulti- for I think ultimately, people. Yeah, sorry. I think ultimately, really, what this athlete profiling thing comes down to is like we only. The reality is, is like for the NFL offseason, we have them for like eight to ten weeks. Like, how can we make small changes to have the largest return on investment? Like that's what we're trying to do. And then also, like, hopefully, we become a location. Like, I feel like this, like this athlete profiling provides us information, like a black box on a plane, right? Like. Inevitably, when some bird decides to like fly into the engine and the plane just goes like plummeting to the ground because of some like, hopefully we can be like, okay, well, what did the black box, what was happening before they decided to plummet to the ground and blow their ACL out? Like we, there was probably nothing we could have done for that, but at least we know some sort of baseline to return to of, you know, okay, hey, the reality is, is like elite athlete is like, it's not a healthy endeavor. Like they're going to have injuries. They're going to have restrictions. They're going to have pain. Like we just have to create a model to manage, not fix. Cause like, you're not going to fix it. Like they still have to go hit another 300 pound human. Like it's going to happen. Whatever injury signature they possess and then just maximize the stimulus within their given restrictions. Like I think Dan Pfaff like describes it best. Like perfect doesn't exist. Like it's never going to, like I, I, I listened to him talk about, it. he's like, He's like, you know, I've had a, I've had 80 plus Olympians, you know, many of them have won world championships. They were absolute wrecks. Like, <laughs> like the, like the fact that they still went out and won a world championship. Like, I feel like it's, it's so humbling to watch the true brilliance in athletic gifts 
of some of these athletes who are like, oh, you could literally train once a week and still go out on Sunday and score like three touchdowns and then still get, you know, like it's unbelievable. It It's unbelievable to watch. Like how can I try to, you know, help you uh, have some longevity in that career, even though you're super talented? <laughs> Like, let's yeah, hopefully and you, <laughs> and you bring that point up of that, you know, at that point, it's the land of the gifted and the freaks. And so you have to go and do it. And I, I just anytime I hear someone say, well, we want to take a wellness approach towards, you know, football or whatever. And it's like, yeah, well, just just don't get out of bed. Just take a nap like they, at the end of the day, there's an inherent risk. But it's someone's choice that they want to be the very best at this thing that could be financial. They're paying you know, for their family's livelihood in college, uh, it's the scholarship, it's the NIL, it's the whatever. Um, you can't have everything. And so there that risk, and, and I like the analogy of like a black box of like what's been going on the last couple months, what's been going on the last couple of weeks. Let's make a course correction, not just blow it up and throw in a brand new training stimulus because you know you're broken. I'm, I think we finally have gotten out of the phase of the strength therapist. That was kind of weird coming out of the two thousands where, you know, everyone said, you know, you have to activate this muscle and you have to this and that. And, and all these individuals that you're, you're a CSCS, you're, you're a personal trainer. You're not a DPT. If they're that broken, they should go there. But people kept finding these little flaws that were holding them back. And so they just, you know, wouldn't squat for three months or they wouldn't trap bar. They wouldn't do whatever uh, because they had this unknown thing and the known guru could fix it. That was a, a really frustrating time. But I think now with technology, we can see a, sometimes it's not that big of a deal. And B, like you said, as long as it's managed, um, there's other things that you can do to make an impact. If their only stimulus is the TheraBand doing clamshells, and then you want them to go out and hit another human at full speed, that is a recipe for disaster. Like they have to have some sort of stimulus to be ready for what lies ahead. I can't just like, it's negligence if I'm like, okay, yeah, let's just, let's have them do some, some, some monster walks, some, some, some clamshells and some banded, you know, hip thrusts. Like, like they have to go hit somebody like th that's like, that's not a stimulus that's, that's going to lend well to the demand of their sport. Yeah. But I think that comes, I, that comes out of people not wanting to get hurt during training. And, and as you alluded to, when you start getting to these higher levels, you've got, you know, workout logs, you've got, you know, force profiles, you you have a lot of things that go into your decision. But if you're at a local gym, and you have somebody or you know, you're a single person outfit, and you don't have uh, kind of the competence in some of these loading schemes for the intermediate and advanced athletes. Yeah, no, I get it. So they won't get hurt while they're with you. And you can put it all over Instagram and get lots of likes. Um, but then they're going to go out and be underprepared. And so to me, it's not about just the injury during your training session, it's under your care, which could be in season. It could be that they're coming back. What are you doing to prepare them to do as far as it relates to their craft so that they can be successful? Or are you just trying to cover your butt? And that's where the technology really now is starting to separate those kind of practitioners to those kind of circus tricks. And I want to like bring something tactical. Like it could be as simple as a conversation about how they're sleeping. Like I have, I recently, I had a conversation with an athlete who's been very successful in their sport. They're one of the better players of their position in, in, in a certain league. And when I listened to this individual talk about what their sleep is like, I couldn't believe the amount of success they still had. It was unbelievable. Like I'm talking about like not sleeping for days, 
and then going out and playing and still being one of the best in the world at what they do. Like, holy crap, if we could try to hone that in, like how much better are you going to feel? Like how much can we extend this career? Like it doesn't have to only be technology. Like I think that's the biggest thing uh, that we're trying to do kind of here is, you know, we have access to a lot of great technology here, but like the principles around what we're trying to look at are relatively the same. Like, Hey, we're looking at body weight power, looking how they run. We're looking, you know, how they jump, like how can we utilize some of these and create a model that you don't necessarily need to have all the fancy technology, but you can do it with some other things and you can still kind of funnel it into the same, you know, the same bucket. Okay. If they're in these buckets, like how do we adjust the base program that doesn't really change very much, but we can make those minor adjustments. And that's where that's, that's really, I think kind of the, uh, the mission that we really have, you know, as, as kind of a, a secondary or even tertiary goal here at Sanford is how can we continue to kind of mold what, what a model looks like if we're very fortunate. We have two full-time PTs as well. So we do, base, it's super hands-on return to play. And we have a lot of autonomy. You know, how can we provide value back to, you know, Sanford, you know, in the Midwest with a much larger footprint and then also value to the athletes that we serve here? Like, I think that's ultimately, you know, what, what we're really trying to do. And it, it can be simple conversations. Like I said, like, what are you, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? Like, you would be amazed at some of the habits and uh, like just like sleep hygiene, nutritional hygiene, things like that. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think the most overlooked thing right now in this kind of data analytics, sports science era is common sense. If you go in and your athlete can't identify a carb or a vegetable, that's some low hanging fruit. And oftentimes making someone from a 38 inch vertical to a 39 has a much smaller impact than you slept for three days straight. You know, you hydrated or you figured out your electrolytes or you've taken, you know, a probiotic or you, you found out you were lactose intolerant. I can't even remember how many people that we found out had that issue. Um, and so focusing on that, but then when you start layering technology on it, it's game over. I mean, some of the stuff that we're seeing now on the plates, the drive decisions, and I think you played with it a little bit. Um, well, yeah, with the flexible nonlinear, that's really where the field's going is that you have this common sense logic combined with some sort of subjective psycho, um, you know, psychosomatic, psychosocial feedback of how they're feeling or what their perceptions of the, of the, the team or the state is. And then you have some sort of physiological feedback mechanism, whether it's the plates or GPS or whatever, there's some quantification, but you, the coach, you, the coach then have to have a good enough relationship to make a quick injection of what training stimulus this person needs right here, right now on the, on the floor. And I think that's where the field's headed. And it's great because if you're good at your job, we will now have data to show our competence because we've always lived in the gray area of sport coaches and skill and strategy. We're headed towards you as the practitioner can elicit results just in the way that a doctor can. But instead of, you know, prescribing medicine, we prescribe, you know, barbells or we prescribe load. And I think that's going to be great for everyone. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like I love like the ability to use technology and have all the access to, to all the metrics and is awesome. I think what I see sometimes is, and I've definitely hundred percent made this mistake. We've done, we've gone through it a couple different times, but you want to track all these things at once, but then you don't really know what's happening or you lose what the value of those are. Like, I, I think you've used this analogy with me before, right? It's like, I would rather have a thousand jumps on one person than one jump on a thousand people. Like 
it's much more valuable. You can actually make actionable change to what's happening. And I think that's another thing with the whole sports science and data analytic thing that kind of bothers me a little bit is like, you'll have people putting out these fancy graphics and like, you know, my, my thought on radar plots and things like that, but it's like, who knows how to read that besides the person making it? Yeah. Like no one. We've talked with uh, Peter Mundy at length on, on, on the podcast and some of our other seminars and stuff. And he's, you know, arguably pretty good. He knows what he's doing. He's a world leader in that. And he'll be the first to say, just keep it simple. And, you know, if you're trying to do athlete monitoring, yeah, you get a thousand jumps on an individual, you're going to have a pretty good sense of how they respond to their stimulus. So that, you know, thousand people, like that's good for a longitudinal study, or maybe it's good for a normative data set. But when you start talking about these people that are just, we're measuring and measuring what you're really doing is you're choosing to invest time in something that should either have an acute or chronic feedback loop to then ultimately help you get to your decision. But to your point, if your goal is just to make pretty radar charts or graphs and you can't provide a solution, because how many times have you seen those things and it's, we suck, we're slow. Well, what are we going to do to fix it? Well, that's not my job. That's, that's the strength coach. And I've said the strength coaches, though, we got to step it up. Like you got to be able to type more than 60 words a minute. Like in today's era, the strength coach needs to get on board to be able to come up with that and then collaborate with the different departments. Cause it used to just be the strength conditioning coach and the head coach. Now we have performance teams. You just mentioned already, you have sports scientists, you've got PTs. You can't just walk in and say, well, this is the way that I've always done it, which is typically the legacy model that the, the industry's seen. So you need to have some kind of informed um, decision-making either based off data, based off feedback and work together as a team. And that's, that's truly the performance team that you're looking for. Yeah. And like this, the way we always did it, like I, uh, they, they make this, uh, this term in, in the book range, they talk about overlearned behavior and they give the example of wildland firefighters. When a fire's coming, a lot of the time they find them with their tools, but if they would have just dropped their tools and run, they would have lived. Like, I kind of think of that as like the, the strength coach or, you know, the performance, you know, staff that just like goes and does the same thing because that's the way it's always been done. But the example you just gave, like they were doing, you know, they didn't feel comfortable without the tools that, that they had always used for their job. If they would just drop the tools and tried something new, they would have survived. I think that's the same thing when we're adapting to, you know, like how this, this landscape is changing in performance. Like obviously data is becoming extremely important. And, you know, for better or for worse, there's a lot of value in it. But I feel like, you know, I've talked to you about this too. It's like, I want to be old school enough to be able to call people that have done it before me and be like, hey, what has worked? But then new school enough to be like, hey, I've actually tracked this over time. And I think this is good, but I also think maybe I can make an iteration on this and it maybe have a better return down the road. Like, don't forget where you came from. Like, you have to have humility and understand that, 15 years of experience prior to me is probably better than me jump, you know, have, being able to use the technology. And I've you know, only been doing it for, you know, a year or whatever. It's like, Oh, well, I, I know better than this person. Well, that person had a lot of success and it's not just because they followed the same thing over and over again. It's from a lot of experience mistakes and then also successes. Like how can I learn from other people's experiences? Not only your own. Yeah. I felt a lot of time we, we spent trying to look at what worked, but why, so whether it's, you know, understanding the metabolic circuit, the, AKA the Husker, yeah, you got to be able to move 30,000 pounds in 37 minutes. So if you're not strong enough, then the program doesn't work. Conversely, if you're so strong that you move more than 50,000 pounds, 
that just is a lot of load that takes time to recover. So maybe we need to default. But then when we go and turn around that they've gained 15 to 20 pounds, their vert has gone up three inches. How did it, how did it, to your point earlier, did it, was it muscular? Was it neuromuscular? Was it, was it just that they got more coordinated than recruiting their tissue instead of saying, well, no, their vert went up. We can now start to dissect that. And I think, and I, what I hope is that there is some time spent back looking at some of the traditional plans, like understanding the five by five and why was it done at a certain percentage? And why was the Texas method so effective for the intermediate planning? Because we do have a lot of history. And when you hear people talk about, you know, oh, well, this is the new hotness. Chances are this has already happened and it came and it went. And either because there was something either new um, that was better and flashier, or it actually didn't work. And, and you mentioned isometrics talking about that. I highly encourage everyone to go read Terry Todd's post from the early 1970s on the Stark Museum. You can download it. Then let me know what you think about isometrics, because it certainly has a role. But I think if you don't know the story of York Barbell and you don't know the story of Hoffman, then maybe you wouldn't look at isometrics the same. So again, for people who go out, read that article. That was one of Terry's first papers that he wrote. It's pretty transformative on understanding kind of commercialization of training that we've seen for the last several decades. So, but enough on that. I want to talk about as you go forward here and you start seeing kind of where, you know, you're looking to take the, the program that you have um, from a training standpoint, less interns, but just more your craft, where are you trying to push the envelope and, and get out to the tip of the spear in your training in the facility right now? Where are you guys really looking to advance your, your knowledge and understanding? I, to be honest, I think it's to continually develop uh, kind of a little bit of this return to play model. I feel like that at, at this point, we, you know, from this athlete profiling perspective for individuals that are healthy, we have a, we have a pretty decent idea on kind of what we want to do. Not to say it won't change because it probably will. You know, hopefully we, we've filtered out a lot of the BS, like there's plenty of things we tried and, you know, we feel pretty confident in kind of the, the, the approach that we're taking now. And if things continue to go the way they are awesome. Uh, but what we really want to kind of make headway with on is kind of like, <clears throat> what is our model for athletes that have ACL or had an Achilles or things like that? Like, how are we going to have a logical progression along with PT? Cause we're so fortunate to have them, you know, with us, like, how can we have objective measurements in a performance setting, but then also taking into account what the clinical measurements are with the, with the physiotherapists. I think that's, that's the next big progression for us is kind of building out that model so that we continue to have uh, an impact and uh, hopefully, you know, help these, these athletes that need to get back from, from surgeries to, to you know, earn contracts um, in the future. I think that's, that's something from a, a um, facility perspective. I think from an individual perspective, for me, I'm extremely fortunate to to work with some people who who've had quite a bit of experience in kind of this NFL combine prep, um, more track and field ish sprint based thing. Um, and it's something I think in traditional strength and conditioning um, like education that doesn't get talked about very much. Feel like in in all the textbooks, it's like no one really talked about volumes or drills or <clears throat> different intensities for sprinting, and then um, even the tech, even the coaching of technique side. I think that's that's probably my biggest blind spot. So it's something that I'm kind of diving into, and then also. <laughs> 
for better or for worse, I'm I'm trying to learn to code a little bit um, <laughs> on a necessity for the fact of getting things done faster. <laughs> so um, that's something else that I'm beating my head against the wall with um, as of right now. <laughs> hey, biggest game changers. You can chat GPT Python. And I was like, this is going to be incredible. I was mentioned to our mutual friend, Dan. He said, what? And I said, yeah, that he's how many months did he spend learning that and getting ready to put stuff into R and learning all those languages? It's a uh, Certainly an interesting time. So that's a pretty cool endeavor that, you know, most coaches don't talk about. So I, I want to close out. I want to ask you just real quick, if you were, you know, in charge of the world and you could bring two new guests onto the show, who would be two people that you think would be worth coming on? I guess I'm about to shout out a friend first. Um, so kid I went to grad school with, uh, his name is Nick DeMarco. He's uh, the current director of performance in, uh, for Air Force Special Warfare in San Antonio. So anyone who goes through selection uh, goes through him. Uh, he was actually 11 years active duty prior to going to school, very non-traditional um, education path. Um, but I went to grad school with him. I think that would be an excellent um, person to bring on. Uh, he has some unbelievable stories. I don't know if you could tell them on the podcast, but there, there are some good ones for sure. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Who's your second? <laughs> Um, gosh, I know he's not going to want to do this, but it's actually one of my coworkers. Uh, his name's Sazi Guthrie. I'm telling you, this guy, one of the most undervalued people in SNC because he has like zero social media presence whatsoever. But if you have the opportunity to talk to him and like kind of listen to even his thought process, like, so he came initially from um, a methodology that was anti resistance training. They only believed on the speed and like plyometric side of of performance and it's something he always struggled with. But because of the environment he was in and who he was working for, he could not use traditional resistance training. So his ability to solve problems that could have been solved through resistance training through positional isometrics or other things like that um, kind of opened, you know, my mind a lot to you know like how can as long as the stimulus is what we need for the adaptation like there's there's probably de many different methods like obviously there are but i think being within that constraint allowed him to have a a lens to look through that has been incredible to be around um and i'm extremely grateful for the time that i've i've kind of spent with him over the last 18 months Cool. Well, I know you're always paying it forward. And if someone's listening to this, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you, whether it's a personal question, whether they're interested in the internship, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, so easy. So on Instagram and Twitter, it's Brock underscore Cruz, and that's C-R-E-W-S. Um, if you guys contact me there, um, I could definitely, uh, if you're interested in an internship, I can direct you to an internship application. So we have three different classes. So we have a summer program, we have a fall program, and then a spring program. Uh, in the summer, we uh, select three. And in the fall and the spring, we select two. And like I kind of mentioned before, that is a paid opportunity. Um, it has been competitive and I recruit pretty heavily. Um, so um, I, I would just recommend trying to get in early. And I'm always I'm always willing to sit down and have a conversation if, if it's mutually beneficial for everybody and hopefully try to... Um, you steer you in the right direction, hopefully. I mean, not to say that I'm an authority on any of that. The only thing I can do is offer kind of my mistakes and the things that that I've went through and uh, hopefully try to help you along with the process. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Always love talking to you. And again, I hope you do well and get ready here as we record this. The, uh, the combine is just around the corner. So I know you're going to have a bunch of athletes there. So uh, <laughs> hopefully they represent well and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Talk to you later. Yeah.